0: Today we're in Mark chapter 6, which Scott just read for us, and if you're a guest with us today, haven't been with us, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel since last fall, and we found ourselves at this wonderful story of Jesus walking on water. And like I said at the start of our service, I'm pumped to preach it. And as I was preparing it this week, I really got to thinking about that saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Have y'all ever heard that before? It's variously attributed to Winston Churchill and various people from history. But if you fail to learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. I've certainly learned that's true. I've got the type of personality and the stubborn streak. That means I've had to learn the same lesson and suffer the consequences of it multiple times. Y'all with me? Yeah. Sometimes you, you get into the middle of a mess and you look at it, and you you get some perspective, and you think to yourself, I should have known better. I I should have known better. Shame on me. I knew that was going to happen. I've made that mistake before. And when I read this story, I think about that for these disciples. I mean, you ask, like, do these guys never learn? Haven't they been here before? Haven't they done that before? Haven't they got the t-shirt to prove it? You know, this is sort of par for the course in who they are. They've been on the sea before in a mess. Back in chapter 4, they're out in the middle of, the sea, uh, the, lake of uh, the sea of Galilee, and the storm comes up, and the wind and the waves start blowing, and the little boat they're in starts rocking back and forth, and they think they're about to, you know, they're about to die. Their ship's going to drown. And so they wake Jesus up, and they say, don't you care that we're about to die? And, of course, he just stands up and says, peace be still and the wind and the waves die down. They've, they've seen this before. They've been through this. Don't they know better? Shouldn't they know better? When I mean, you think about all that they had witnessed in the life of Jesus, miraculous display of power after miraculous display of power, feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, did they never learn? And, of course, in asking that question, I'm brought face-to-face with the reality that I'm just like him. Now, Brad, don't you ever learn? Shouldn't you know better? Now, theologically, doctrinally, I assume you're like me. You know that Jesus has told us he will never leave us nor forsake us. I'm with you wherever you go, even to the ends of the earth. And yet, When I find myself in difficult circumstances, what I'm calling today a mess and a struggle, I tend to go them alone. I tend to rely on my strength. Maybe you're like me, and if so, I want to challenge you to learn what I've had to learn this week, relearn this week. If we'll take a look at how these disciples reacted in the middle of this storm, we can avoid their mistake. Because we're going to see the shepherd is ready to comfort and calm anybody who trusts in Him. So we're going to dive through that. I want to show you three reasons why that's the case. But first, let's remember where we are. Last week we saw Jesus and His disciples retreat into a desolate place for some much-needed R and R, rest and relaxation. They just finished a difficult season of ministry. And there were so many people crowding around that Mark tells us they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus gets his 12 disciples in the boat, and they head off to some place where they can just be alone. And the crowds of people who adore Jesus and want to get in on whatever God's doing through him see him leaving, and they ran on ahead so that they beat him to this desolate place. When he got there, he looked at them and felt compassion for them because he recognized they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. And as hour passed into hour and the day faded into evening, the people started to get hungry. I hope you all are hungry. There's a ton of food over there waiting for us in the activity building. It's been blessed and multiplied. They started to get hungry, and so the disciples were like, you need to turn these people loose so they can get something to eat. And, of course, Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. And he pulls out the five loaves and the two fishes that the disciples can get their hands on. And he breaks the bread, looks up to heaven, blesses it, and then distributes it so that all 5,000 men and their families were able to eat. But a strange thing happens. After feeding the people miraculously, Mark tells us he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. He made them. That's pretty forceful forceful language for Jesus, and I think it probably indicates that he knew that those crowd of hungry people were as of yet in the dark about the source of all that food, but if the disciples hang around any longer, they're going to tell them that Jesus had just multiplied those loaves and fish, and whatever messianic hope and expectation was bubbling underneath the surface was going to break out and they were going to, like Mark, uh, like John says in John chapter 6, they were going to make him king by force. And so, hoping to release some of that pressure, Jesus gets his disciples out of there and dismisses the crowds. So he says goodbye to them, the crowds go away, and Jesus heads up the mountain to pray. This is the, third, the second time in Mark's gospel where He shows us Jesus alone praying. The third time is at the end of the gospel when Jesus ends in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first time is back in chapter 1 when all of Capernaum gathered to Peter's mother-in-law's house and wanted Jesus to heal them. And Jesus retreated before dawn and prayed. And when the disciples found him, he said, let's go. i got to go to the other cities to preach, for that's the purpose for which I came. And in each one of these moments of prayer, Jesus is at a crisis and turning point in his life. And he reorients himself and recommits himself to the Father's plan for him. He's not going to be the Messiah who rides into Jerusalem and kicks out the Romans. He's going to be the one who suffers to save his people. And so we get this strange dichotomy. Jesus on the mountain, prayerfully entering the presence of the Father, and the disciples in the middle of the lake fighting a headwind. Mark tells us that their boat was in the middle of the sea, that's verse 47, and they were straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. Now, if you're not good on biblical geography like me, you could look up in the back of your Bible a map of ancient Palestine, the holy land in Jesus' day, and you could take that little measuring, the little scale at the top left corner of your map, and you could figure this out. I went online this week and, and asked, but at its widest point, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide. When Mark says they're in the middle of the lake, the disciples maybe are three or four miles offshore. It's not a very big body of water. James Edwards, commentator I've been leaning on through this series, says that even in the most difficult of conditions, you could cross the Sea of Galilee in six to eight hours. But these experienced fishermen who'd grew up on its shores and been out on it thousands, countless of times, they were in a situation like no other. They had been rowing all night, trying to maintain their course for Bethsaida against this northeastern wind. Been rowing maybe eight or ten hours. And they'd only made it to the middle of the lake These guys were locked in a struggle, man versus nature, rowing with all their might, trying to obey what Jesus had told them to do. Go ahead to Bethsaida, and I'll meet you guys there. And here they were, with all their might, rowing, not able to make any progress. I want to put yourself in their shoes. Think about what that must have been like, to spend all night at the oars, wearing yourself out, You're frustrated, emotionally drained after a day of ministry and all night of rowing. You're physically worn down. You're hungry. Maybe the 12 baskets of bread and fish that were left over from the feast have been consumed as they're trying to stay awake and maintain their energy. I mean, they are out there in the middle of the lake, totally worn out and depleted and going nowhere fast. You ever been there? You ever been depleted, worn out, tapped out completely, got nothing left. Maybe you and your your spouse sit down and you make those great big plans we make, financial plans. You get your goals in order and you set yourself out to do what you feel like you know you need to do. Six months later, you open your bank statement, been wearing yourself out trying to make progress, but it somehow seems you've gone backwards ever made that commitment to God? Hey, you know what, Lord? I see what you're doing. I'm done. I'm going to get closer to you than I've ever been. And so you wake up with newfound commitment. And it seems like as the week goes on, things get tougher and tougher and tougher. And by the time the next Sunday rolls around, you're worse off than you were the week before. You say, I got to start treating my family better, my coworkers, my employees. I got to do better in the way I speak to my folks. But everything stacks against you. You're worn out, tapped out, you got nothing left. Maybe it seems like today that the winds of life are blowing against you harder than they have ever blown before. And you feel all alone in it. Listen to what the shepherd does. Look at verse 48. Mark tells us Jesus was on the mountain, but he saw them straining at the oars. This morning, I want you to know you can trust the shepherd. He stands ready to comfort you because he sees you in your struggle. From the disciples' perspective, they're out there in the middle of the lake all alone, straining against a powerful wind. But from Jesus' vantage point, he knew exactly what they were facing. I'm not sure how this works. Okay, I told you I looked it up online. How far across is the Sea of Galilee? Jesus is on a mountain. The disciples are in the middle of the lake. So they're maybe like three to five miles away from the mountain. Worse than that, it's the middle of the night. It's the fourth watch when he finally comes to them. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Jesus is on top of a mountain praying to the Father, and he looks out through the dark five miles away and he sees his disciples straining at the oars. How does that work? One commentator said, well, does Mark assume that Jesus has supernatural ability and telephoto vision? He can just zoom in and see. Was the night clear? And did Jesus' vantage point on the mountain enable him to see what was happening? I don't know, maybe they had some lanterns on board the boat, and he could see the lanterns just staying in the same place. I don't know. For Mark, such questions are irrelevant. What matters is not how Jesus can see, but that he sees. And surely what Mark means for us to understand is more than Jesus' ability to perceive things, his observational capabilities. There's something theological going on. That from the mountain Jesus manifests himself as, the Old Testament puts it, as the God who sees, the God who saw his people straining in bondage to Egypt and sent them a deliverer, the God of whom the scripture says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are exposed. And it's Jesus' sight that led him to feel compassion for the crowd, seeing the crowd, He felt compassion on them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And So I don't know what you're facing. Maybe it's the financial thing. Maybe it's the way you talk to your family. Maybe it's just your relationship with God. Whatever headwinds you feel like you're struggling against, what was true for those 12 disciples is absolutely true for you. He sees you in your struggle. I love the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. So our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Listen, don't go it alone. Don't wear yourself out straining against the oars. He sees you. He knows. And because he sees you and knows, you can rest assured that he's with you in your struggle. Look what Mark says in the second half of verse 48. He says, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. He came to them. I love this because here again, we are met face to face with the miraculous in the life of Jesus. Here he comes walking on the water. walking on the water, this is such a memorable episode in the life of Jesus that it's passed into common usage as a cliche. The dictionary says, to walk on water means to do something extraordinary or impossible. And of course, Jesus did something impossible, so impossible that many people have sought to explain it away by saying that Jesus wasn't really walking on water, but in that pre-dawn, early light, it only appeared that he was walking on water, but he was actually on the shore or carefully walking among a partially submerged sandbar. And so his disciples thought he was on water. But the authors of Scripture make a much more extravagant claim than that. They're not saying Jesus tricked his disciples, or he did a cool little thing where they thought he was walking on the water, but actually everybody knew he wasn't. No, they fundamentally believed Jesus was walking on the water, that he had seen them, I don't know how, from the mountaintop and had came to them. He had moved heaven and earth to do the unexplainable and miraculous so that they weren't left alone in the middle of the lake. He came to them. In doing so, Jesus, again, reveals himself as much more than any good teacher or a mere man. But he shows himself to be God. I mean, the Old Testament says repeatedly that one of the defining characteristics of Yahweh, the God of Israel, was that he walks on water. Get this, Job 9. Job says, It's God alone who stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Both Isaiah and the psalm writer Asaph praise God as the one who led his people through the Red Sea. Listen to how they do it. Isaiah asks, Who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters? Asaph praises him in Psalm 77. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Jesus comes down the mountain and comes across the water to his people because he's God in the flesh. But there's another reason, not just because of those passages, but... This phrase, I don't know if you picked it up, it's weird. Okay, this is one of the weird things in the Bible that you have to try to wrap your mind around. It says, He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. He intended to pass by them. What is up with that? Now, I get it. You come to them across the sea. That's miraculous and unexplainable. But if you're going through all the trouble to walk on the water, why do you intend to pass them by? And some people have tried to explain that. Maybe from their perspective, it just looked like he was going to pass them by or something. But I think there's something deeper going on. This language of passing by is a technical phrase in the Old Testament. Shows up several times for a theophany. One of the the unexplainable, life-changing encounters God's people had with him when he revealed himself. For instance, in Exodus 33, Moses begged God to show him his glory up on Mount Sinai. You remember that? He hideth my soul in the cliff of the rock. I know you know that song. And this is what God said to him. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you or pass by you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Later, the prophet Elijah returned to that same mountain. And he's in a season of deep brokenness and desperation for God. And he hides in a cave. And God tells him, come out to the mouth of the cave. This is in 1 Kings 19. And I love the way the author puts it. He said, Elijah went to the mouth of the cave, and behold, the Lord was passing by. You when Jesus came down from the mountain, and he marched across the waters... He didn't come to his disciples as a holy man, coming back into civilization after a season of intense prayer. He didn't come down the mountain and across the waters as some kind of powerful miracle worker. Like he just wanted to impress them with his ability to do the impossible. He didn't come down to them as a friend who sticks closer than a brother or as a zealous warrior ready for a fight. Jesus came down as God in the flesh, the God who's near to the brokenhearted and near to all who call upon him. And think about what this means. Moses goes up on the mountain and God tells him, hey, you better set up a fence and warn the people not to come close to the mountain or touch it or they're going to die. And Moses, one-on-one with God, gets this revelation of God's glory. He passes by Moses Elijah's in the wilderness all by himself, feeling sorry for himself as the last prophet alive. And he gets a one on one encounter with God in the still small voice. But what Jesus does is even greater. He doesn't invite one man to the top of the mountain, he descends the mountain and comes to us. In Christ, God's glory has drawn near all who trust in Him. Think of what the Scripture says. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't this what Paul means? In Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is like the whole snapshot of Jesus Christ. That Jesus draws near to us, and in him, God is with us. This is why I say to you today, you shouldn't go it alone in your struggle. But the God who sees you from his heavenly vantage point, knows everything about you, knows you inside and out. Gave his only son so that he could be with you. So that he could enter into the brokenness of our world and live a sinless life. To die on the cross for us, be raised on the third day, and then offer to anybody who trusts in him abundant life with him forever. That is the offer of the gospel. He'll move heaven and earth. He'll walk on water just to be near you in the middle of your mess. But look, he comes sometimes differently than we expect. Then you love this? I love the way Scott read it. He put the emphasis right on it. He said, When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and we terrified that's cute that's cute you know you look at these disciples and you can even imagine their little shrieks ah it's a ghost you know and you can laugh about it but put yourself in their shoes i mean i know they lived a long time ago but they knew men didn't walk on water they had no category for understanding what it was they were seeing I mean, the only frame of reference they had were the ghost stories they'd heard as kids. That, hey, you better watch out and not go out on the sea at night. There are ghosts out there. And here comes one. Somehow, they are straining against the oars trying to fight this headwind, and the ghost just floats on by. Makes easy progress against the wind. He's a disembodied spirit floating over the waves. They had no other way to explain it. I think this shows us that Jesus is of course always near to us in our struggle but sometimes he's there in ways that we didn't really expect. And this is probably where I struggle the most with this. I often find myself in the middle of something. You know, whether it's looking for direction in life. Dealing with things with my kids or my wife. You know, I'm trying to figure it out. Lord, what are you doing in this moment? And I tend to jump to my solutions, and I tell God, hey, well, Lord, all you got to do is just answer this prayer, and everything's going to be okay, you know, and this really, this really happened. I've told you this story before, but I can't not tell it, that in 2016, I was serving at a church in Houston, and I had just finished up my master's degree, and uh, felt called to preach, wanted to be a senior pastor, and uh, had my master's degree, God was blessing my kids, you know, our daughter was being born the next month, and so I just set out, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to send my resume out, and I'll be God's greatest gift to some group of people somewhere, you know, (laughs) and so I did. I had my buddy send out 25 resumes for me to churches in North Carolina and Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana and Texas, 25 churches. You know, at the time, this seems crass, and this is like seeing how hot dogs are made or something. But as a pastor, you know, you want to believe God's going to open a door, right? So you want to be patient, and you say, Hey, Lord, I'm, you know, I want to preach. I know this is what you've called me to. You're going to have to open the door. But you also want to help him and show him all the available options. And so I sent out all these resumes. And, and you know, weeks would go by, and I never heard from them. It's like radio silence. No kind-hearted email or handwritten note. Hey, you have an excellent resume. Uh, We're going to keep thinking about this. Now, the only response I got was from a church in East Texas. Then, you know, I opened up my mailbox. I remember still open up that mailbox and think, oh, this is it, Lord. You're about to answer every one of my prayers. And I, I didn't even get back to the house in the woodlands. They have communal mailboxes. And so I was standing there by that mailbox and I just ripped it open and opened it. And it said, Dear Dr. Brown, we regret to inform you we've gone in a different direction. And I was so brokenhearted. Like, I was so far down that church's list of candidates, they couldn't even get the right letter in my envelope, you know, Dear Dr. Brown. I was devastated. <laughs> I was absolutely devastated. I'll tell you where I was. I was in the middle of a lake, and I'd been straining for hours in my own strength, trying to figure it out. And I was exhausted and depleted, and I felt totally alone. I even remember. Not long after that, sitting on the couch in our living room and looking at my wife and saying, "I feel like God has abandoned me." Where, where was he? And all that. You, uh, you insert your own story. You get that sense. Where are you, God? You've put me out here in the middle of a lake. I've got nothing left. At the time, I thought all I needed was the right church and everything would be okay. But, of course, that wasn't what God was trying to do. He wasn't trying to bring me to the right church. He was having to work inside of me before he could work through me. He was refining me and reshaping me, showing me what really mattered in life was not where I preached or if I preached, but that I knew God. God that I was walking with him every day. And then if that meant I got to the end of my life and had never been a senior pastor and had never preached on a platform somewhere, I was going to be okay. He was there. Just in a way I hadn't expected. Thought he was going to answer my prayer the way I thought he should. Instead, he had a different perspective on me and on my life. He was doing something unexplainable and unexpected. And then a couple years later, When I sent one resume to Central Baptist Church in Luling, Texas, it just all fell into place. So God knew what he was doing. So I don't know what struggle you're going through today. Whether or not you feel like God is nowhere to be found, like he's abandoned you. But based on this story, couldn't it be that he is near to you just in a way that you haven't expected? Maybe his solution for your struggle is not... An unexplainable, unexpected check in the mail. The IRS said you overpaid taxes the past 10 years and they're giving it all back. That answers some prayers, but maybe that's not what he's going to do. Maybe it's not the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend, the new relationship, the new job. Maybe it's not going to be the miraculous removal of all your problems. It's just going to be that he's going to teach you that whatever you face in life, he sees you and he's near to you. And if he's near to you, what else do you need? After all, this story also teaches us that the shepherd comforts us in our struggle. I love the way Jesus answers his disciples' shrieks. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. Now, if you and I had rolled up to the disciples in another boat... We would have said, hey, guys, just hang in there. Hey, this wind's going to die down, and you'll get across the Bethsaida. It'll all be all right. He, we would have given some kind of corny pep talk. Now, you can do this. Teamwork makes the dream work, guys. Row harder. That's what we would have said. Not Jesus, though. Jesus doesn't do any of that corny pep talk. Instead, he speaks courage into them. He encourages them. Take courage. It is I. This courage wasn't positive vibes. Guys, just think about it differently. It wasn't like an encouragement to manifest the reality they hoped for. Like, just think differently about this, and you'll see that it's really not that hard, and things could be much worse. Now, the courage Jesus spoke into them was that characteristic which means to be firm and resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. To be firm and resolute in the face of danger and adverse circumstances. He saw in their eyes the terror. He heard the voice in their, he heard the fear in their voice. He knew exactly what they were facing. It wasn't the wind, it was fear. And after a long night of fighting the wind and wondering if they were ever going to make it to shore. It's not hard to imagine why they would be afraid. They're not operating at 100%. And yet, when the shepherd drew near, he told them, take courage. Take courage. I don't think it's reading too much into the story to say that when Jesus tells them, take courage, he could have told them other stuff. He could have spoke other positive qualities into them. But he knew in that moment exactly what it was they needed. They were afraid. They would cried out. And so he answered them according to their need. The presence of the shepherd with them assured them of his provision. He's the shepherd who provides. And so he's going to give them exactly what they need in the moment. And because he was there on the sea and in the boat with the disciples, he was able to bring calm and comfort the entire situation they had the courage they needed and the wind died down in that one moment jesus proved that he was the shepherd who provides for every one of their needs i love the way david puts it in psalm 23 even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil why You are with me. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You're with me. And if you're with me, I have everything I need. This morning, I don't know what struggle you're facing. But I can assure you that Jesus knows. He sees you in it. He's near to you in it. And whatever it is that you need, he is ready to provide it. What's heartbreaking, I think, about this story and why it hits so close to home for us is that Mark tells us the key problem for the disciples. The very end of the passage, verse 52. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. See, the disciples should have known better. They had every reason to believe that Jesus knew what they needed. And if they would trust him, he would provide. Instead of straining against the oars, how about a little, a little communal prayer, guys? We're obviously not making any headway on our own. Why don't we call out to God? God, you're going to have to help us make it to the other side. We're lost without you. But no, just straining against the oars until Jesus shows up. They should have known better. And we should too. We get in the middle of a mess and we rely on our own strength. We strain with everything we've got until we finally realize that what we've got is not enough. And maybe you're there today. Listen, the shepherd is ready to comfort and calm you if you only trust in Him. And so what if we took the lesson from this story and really applied it to our life. And so the number one thing I need to learn from this story and from my own past experiences is my need to cultivate an attitude of dependence on God. To admit that self-sufficiency is insufficiency and I can't make it on my own. I've got to have Him. That is the attitude that Jesus wants to build in you today. He wants you to abide in him. This is how he put it in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I wonder, do you trust Jesus to comfort you in your struggles? To give you strength when you're weak? To cause you to run? To soar? To persevere through whatever trial or mess you're in? If not today, learn from the disciples' mistake and get into the habit of saying to yourself and to your family, we can't get through this without Jesus' help. I can assure you, Jesus is the shepherd is ready to comfort and calm anybody who trusts in him like that. How will you bow your head with me?